was talking to Sean Johnson the other day, and he didn't know I was going to say this. Get your attention there, right? Um, and he told me a hilarious story about Levi, and I'm not going to steal his story. You could share that some other time, Sean, but it, it's hilarious. And it reminded me that as kids, sometimes we don't connect reality to the words that are being spoken around us. Sometimes we have different images of what may be the case of, of the reality that our parents or somebody older is talking about. And, and that's true for me when I was growing up uh, there in West Virginia. My dad worked for DuPont, and DuPont's a huge corporation, obviously, and uh, everybody's heard of DuPont, but they had a plant in Bell, West Virginia. And this place was about an hour away from our home, and it was a very mysterious place. It was, it was very mystifying to me because most of the time when we went there, it was dark. And if you've been to a chemical plant or a plant of that size and magnitude, I mean, there's all kinds of weirdness that you would not see normally and smoke coming out. And so as a little kid, my dad working there, it was just, uh, just a really crazy image and experience. And it made matters worse that one time we took my dad to work. I don't know why the deal was that, but he took a barge or, a, or a, what do you, what you call it, a raft or whatever they called it, um, I forget the word, across the river. What's the word I'm looking for? Help me out there. Ferry, there you go, ferry, a ferry across the river to get to work, and so that was weird. And then my dad worked these weird shifts, and so he would go to work early in the morning, and it's like 4 o'clock, 4.30, and he would leave. And then the strangest thing to add to it, I mean, think about like a four or five-year-old kid, this happening, like even on Christmas Day, they, they would call my dad and be like, hey, we need you to work overtime, right? We need you to come in. And my dad would, would go, and I'm like, man, my dad's really important. Like, they need him, like, on Christmas Day to go work. Like, like this is a, a big deal. And so there was a lot of mystery uh, around my dad and his job for me as a kid. But then when I got older and I, they had a thing at his work and I was able to go to work and see his work. And so I went with my dad and it was kind of neat, even though we, there were security guards and there was fences and you go through all these things. But I was with my dad, he flashed his ID and went right in. And it was so awesome just going, going to work with my dad after this years of not really understanding exactly what was going on there. Well, this concept, this idea of, of going to work with your dad is something that Jesus did every single day. And we haven't maybe thought of it in that regards, but that's exactly what Scripture talks about in our passage, in our text today, that Jesus literally went to work with his dad. And in our text today, Jesus says this to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the leader, leaders of this day, and they get really upset by that. Why would they get so upset that he said, I'm, I'm working for my dad, I'm going to work with my dad? Well, we're going to see that in our text today. So we're going to be back in John chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse 16 through 24. And so let's pray, and then we'll look at Jesus going to work with his dad. Father God, I thank you so much for your word that gives us life, it gives us truth, it gives us, God, just meaning for the day-to-day -day things that we do and the th things that uh, you've called us to, God. Uh, the things in this life matter, and it, and it has a purpose because you have given yourself to us, that you are our God, and we are your children, and God, through Jesus, we have come to know you, and God, I pray that today that you encourage those who need encouragement, that their life does matter, that it's significant. The things that you've called them to do are, are unique and special to them. And God, help them not to just uh, go be in existence, but help them to see that their existence for the kingdom of God makes a difference if they know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last, year, last week, Roy spoke on Jesus healing a man, and he did this on the Sabbath day. 
And so we're going to pick up in verse 16 right after the narrative that he talked about last week. And so verse 16 of John chapter 5, it says this. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, this healing, on the Sabbath. So believe it or not, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they're upset, they're mad over the fact that Jesus, of all things, can you believe it? He heals a guy who had been lame and invalid for 38 years. He heals them, but that's out of bounds. That's illegal because it's the Sabbath day. And so Jesus shouldn't be doing that. And so let's think about that for a second, because so much of Scripture is, uh, the understanding is understanding the culture, the times of the day, and so it's important for us to understand why this was a big deal and what that means to us now. So we're going to pause right here and talk about Sabbath for a second. Well, if you know the Ten Commandments, and a lot of people, even if they're not believers, know at least some of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment prohibits work on the seventh day, Saturday, the Sabbath, because it's a holy day set apart for God. And we find this in Exodus, specifically that command in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. So the Sabbath day for Israel was a day of rest, where they ceased from their work, and they remembered God who created the universe in six days, and then as an example, he rested on the seventh day. And so we see that in Scripture, but many people maybe ask you, like, why don't you as Christians keep the Sabbath day? And there's a lot of confusion around this, and I hope to clear this up. And I've talked about this a little bit before, about the, the Christian's relationship to the law, specifically the law of Moses. But I think it's important because there's still a lot of misunderstanding and ambiguity when it comes to this. Let's think about the Mosaic Law for a second. The Mosaic Law was given as the law of the land for Israel. Now, when I say law of the land, I mean literally like the law of the land. The civil laws, the ceremonial laws, and there were moral laws that the people were required to keep. And Roy touched on this last week. And there's a lot of people who think that Christians were responsible to obey the moral law, but not the civil law or the ceremonial laws. And so a lot of people say, well, yes, we're responsible for part of the law, but not this other part. But the problem I have with that practically is this. The problem, if you start going through the law, and you start trying to determine what's moral law, what's ceremonial law, what's civil law, sometimes it gets very, very tricky and very difficult. In fact, in Leviticus 20, because of having kids in the room, I won't tell what this illustration is, but I encourage you to look this up because there is a situation where it's a clear cut, like it says, if this happens, you're to throw this person out of Israel. They're, not, they're to be cut off. But the truth of the matter is, is that, is that because of the penalty of that, is that really civil? Because it seems like civil or ceremonial, for sure, not moral. And so what's the deal? How do we negotiate this? What's our relationship with the Mosaic Law? Well, let me show you a graph that I created this week, and maybe this will be helpful, and I've showed other graphs before. But during the time of what's called the Old Covenant, before Christ's death and resurrection, God had this relationship, this covenant with Israel. And part of that, a huge part of that, was the sacrificial system, meaning that sacrifice had to be offered not just once a year, but oftentimes for other things. It was, a, it was essential to the Israelites that they obeyed and participated in the sacrificial system. And it also required strict obedience to the Mosaic law. But under the new covenant, when Jesus came and he died in our place, 
sacrifices are over. They're gone. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And the covenant is not between God and Israel any longer. It's between God and all believers, all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And rather than strict obedience to the Mosaic law, now we have obedience to the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the New Testament. And so let me talk about that for a second. All right, so the Old Covenant has been replaced, has been supplanted for believers in Christ with a new covenant secured by the blood of the Messiah, Jesus. And he is the mediator of that covenant. So the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, is not binding on the Christian as a covenant, as a system. We are not responsible to obey the covenant of the Old Testament and Mosaic Law. And so the laws of the Mosaic Covenant represent a period of time and a covenant that is no longer in force. Therefore, this is important, we can't just simply go through Exodus or Leviticus, pick out various things that are said, and then preach it to believers today as something that they must follow and they must obey. And so we understand that that is a covenant for Israel and the church. All right, now, some of you, right, at this point, you're thinking, your mind, you have some objections. You're like, okay, I don't get it because there's a lot of really, really critical things that God says in the law of Moses. Well, I have another graph for you that may help you, okay? You see, this is what we call a Venn diagram, okay? Many of you had these in school. So in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, you had moral laws. You had ceremonial laws, civil laws, like I said. The New Testament, it's the law of Christ, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophet, they hang on these. And then you have New Testament commands that we are responsible to keep. And in those New Testament commands, you have nine of the ten commandments given specifically throughout the New Testament. It doesn't list them out, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. But the commands are listed for us to keep. And so this doesn't mean as Christians under the New Covenant, we simply live lawlessly it means that we are no longer under the covenant that God gave to Israel, but we're under the law of Christ, and under this law of Christ and the simple commands that we have through the apostles, that we obey those things. Now, through the Holy Spirit's power, because Jeremiah, as Jeremiah prophesied, the laws will be written on our hearts rather than on stone. And so the Holy Spirit, who's within us, as Christians, if you're a believer in here, I don't care if you're 12 or 99 years old, the Holy Spirit is in you, and He takes the Word and the truth of Scripture through the Holy Spirit's influence, and we'll talk more about this in a second, and He makes that real and true in your life. And so, nine of the Ten Commands. The Sabbath day is not given to the new covenant believer as something that we have to obey as such. Colossians 2, 16-17. This will be on the screen. Paul makes it clear. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. He's talking about the ceremonial law, the laws of the Old Testament there, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, here's the key, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And we spent a lot of time on this when we went through the book of Galatians and touched on it in Colossians that this was a shadow, but a shadow just points to something greater, which is the reality of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our reality. He is our Sabbath rest. Romans 14.5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then I think really the, the thing that just drives this home to me and just makes it settled is the fact that in Acts chapter 15, you had the Jerusalem council meeting and trying to determine, okay, what do we do here? Because we have all these Gentile believers coming to faith in Jesus. And are we to put them under the law? And you had the Judaizers, these guys saying, yes, they have to obey all the law of Moses. And then you had others who say, no, 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 the law, this doesn't apply to them. It doesn't, just don't burden them heavily with these things that we shouldn't burden them with. And so the apostles get together and they begin discussing and trying to understand the intent of Jesus and what he did and how this all worked together. And they did not say the Sabbath was binding upon the Christian believers. And so it's inconceivable to me the, the apostles would neglect including Sabbath keeping if it was for something Christians were to do for all time. And so... With that being said, the Sabbath is not something that believers in the New Testament era, in the, under the New Covenant, we have to obey or keep. Now, is the principle of Sabbath still there? Absolutely. Okay, God rested as an example for us. He worked six days. God wasn't tired. We learned that from the Advent devotion, right? God wasn't worn out. I need that extra day as a rest day, and I'm going to set a pattern. No, he gave us an example our bodies need rest. We need focus, not just to lay around and watch TV, but this is about focusing upon Him and our relationship with Him. And that's what Sabbath was originally about, not just rest and ceasing from work. It was about worship. It was about focus upon God. But it's a big deal in the Old Covenant, Sabbath-keeping. And so if you're wondering why the religious leaders of the day got so worked up over this, this was a big deal. In fact, it was such a big deal that breaking the Sabbath in the Old Testament, resulted in death. It was, there was a death penalty for it, Exodus 31, 14, and 15. And so you see why, for them, it was huge. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath, even though he was under the law at this point. He had not died on the cross for our sins. The new covenant had not been ushered in at this point. So he lived under the law. And that's a very important theological point, is the fact that Jesus kept the law perfectly. He was the perfect substitute for one reason, because he was perfect, blameless, sinless. He kept the law perfectly. So he didn't break the Sabbath day here. So look at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But what he was doing was he was not keeping the Sabbath rules that they had set into place, the things that they had added to their traditions that said basically it was all legalism, like the letter of the law. And Jesus understood being God, he understood the spirit of the law. He understood that these things were put into place not to replace genuine love and compassion for others, but so genuine love and compassion for others could take place. And so we could know God and experience God greater and understand him and live out what he's called us to live out. And so the Pharisees were just attempting to destroy all the spirit of the law that God had given them. And so Jesus violated the rules of the religious leaders of the day, but he obviously did not disobey God's law. And the Pharisees, as we're going to see throughout this book, just an example of the this, this Sabbath, just what they did to people and the way they acted over these laws and these rules were just a, a cruel expression of really who they were in their character and their lack of understanding about God. And I've said this a lot 
through early part of this book, and I've said it through when we went through the book of Mark, is that God himself was standing right in front of these religious leaders, and they didn't recognize him. And not only did they not recognize him, they put him to death. So clearly they did not know God. They loved their own rules, and they loved their own laws. So Jesus constantly rebuked them, and he's going to show them throughout this book that it's, it's good to do things, even on the Sabbath. But here's what really gets them, all right? Here's what really gets them fired up. You think they're mad now. Let's see verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. All right, follow this here. This this is important to understand the passage. Jesus' argument for healing on the Sabbath was that God does not suspend his activities on the Sabbath. God doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. And so even though people are required to take a break, God's still at work. Now, the rabbis of that day, even they believed that God rested on, from creation on the seventh day, but he continued his sustaining work of creation even though it was the Sabbath. God didn't take a break from sustaining creation. If he took a step back from sustaining creation, everything would fall apart because Scripture says he holds all things together. And so God's work continued. Even the rabbis understood that. So when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I'm working, he's implying that he, like his father, is Lord over the Sabbath. Imagine that. Jesus says, I'm Lord over the Sabbath because I'm equal to God. I am God. That's why they were fired up. Jesus' claim that he was working the way that God has been always at work is what got them. And so when Jesus compared his healing work On the Sabbath, with God's ongoing activity, those implications were obvious to them. He was claiming to be God, and this was blasphemy. And it's hard to imagine how serious a crime this was. If we think that working on the Sabbath was bad enough, claiming to be God, they lost it. And so you see, understanding these historical perspectives and understanding the Scripture helps you get a greater appreciation for the fact of why these people hated Jesus so much and they wanted to put him to death. And why the common people came to Jesus and wanted to be around Jesus. Because the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes was just beating them down. And that's why we have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are meek. Because the religious leaders had elevated spirituality to this high church mentality. That you just speak in King James English and you're more spiritual, right? That nothing could ever be a problem with me because I'm above that. I'm above all the sins of you peasants and you weak people. And so they had elevated themselves and created a system of legalism that just beat down the people. And here Jesus comes, giving them access to the Father. Amazing through himself. So verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. But Jesus still, he doesn't back down. He doesn't say, okay, Giving you enough. He keeps going. Look what he says in verse verse 19. He says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus shows his dependence upon his dad, upon his father. He says, God's working, and I only do what I see my dad doing, what the father's doing. And that's what I do. I, I, I'm, and Jesus is revealing his role as the, the, a member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. He's equal to God, part of the Trinity, yet submissive in his role as a human being, as the Son of Man walking planet Earth. So Jesus is saying he has the unique ability to, in these situations, and we talked about this a few weeks back, to see God's activity in a way that nobody else could. That he could see God's hand at work. I see what God's doing, and so I join God and do what God's doing. I don't do anything of myself. I only do what I see the Father doing. Do you see the humility and the fact that he's showing himself as a follower who submits to the will of the Father? And it's such a, a great, incredible example for us that he says, I just do what I'm commanded to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And he shows his humility, and he shows the willingness to embrace this role as a follower of God. And so, in a world that we live in where everybody's about power, control, position, i got to be the man, i got to be the woman, i got to be the person in charge, I gotta, it's got to be about what I want, Jesus sets an example of humility that he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And as Christ's followers, don't you think that's a critical example for us to follow as well? That we reflect the Father, Jesus reflect the Father, we reflect Jesus as his followers, his disciples. As Jesus depended upon the Father, we depend upon Jesus. And although we can't, as Jesus did perfectly, see the invisible work of God like Jesus did, but we do have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God that helps us join God in doing His will. We can join God in doing His will. So Jesus, perfectly, I see the Father's activity. I step in, I join Him. For us, we're in the Word, we're in prayer, we're learning the commands of Scripture. We want to live holy, but not just stay away from the don't-do list, but we want to be actively involved in doing making a difference in people's lives. And so not perfectly as Jesus did, but imperfectly as still a person that's still in the flesh, we want to step into what God is doing. And here's the key. Here's the kicker in verse 20. Look what Jesus says. He says, For him, love produced this revelation. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing, himself is doing. It's about this love relationship between the Son and the Father. He says, that's how I'm able to see and do the will of God. It's because I love God and He loves me. And we have this intimacy, this relationship that exists. So as Jesus is able to give revelation through this love relationship that He has with His Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He's doing. That's pretty awesome truth, isn't it? That the love relationship. But what about it for us? How does that work? Hebrews chapter 1, this is not on your screen. It's in the app, I think. I put it there maybe. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so for us, 
This love relationship doesn't produce revelation. Because get this, all right? A lot of heady stuff here. Revelation means God's perfect word, spoken, perfectly given, as he gave it through the apostles and prophets in our scriptures that we hold today. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're holding God's very words. But when we operate in imperfectly to do the will of God, we can't claim revelation. That's why I don't encourage people to say, you know, Kirk, God told me to tell you this. That's why I don't do that. That's why I don't use that language. Because people oftentimes who do that, they want to bring an authority with them that says, God's speaking to me in a a very special way, and I'm going to command and give this to you. And some of you were raised in that tradition. And I I, I encourage you to study this out and, and, and for yourself and see. But the truth is, as human beings, our love relationship with God provides us what's called, the theological term is illumination, where the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God in our love relationship with Him and illuminates the Scriptures and allows us to live for the will of God. And sometimes we're going to miss it. We're not going to do exactly right. The words we speak won't be perfect like Jesus was always perfect, and the Word is always perfect. It's going to be imperfect, but nevertheless, we can be confident as we submit in, with, with humility in the Holy Spirit's work, knowing the Word of God, that the work we do for God will not be in vain or wasted, that God will use it for His purposes. And so Jesus had faith in the Father's love, and so as disciples of Jesus, we have faith in Jesus and His love for us. And so if we want to know God's will and, and to live out God's will, it's about having a relationship with Christ that's real and personal. Let's contrast this with the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. In fact, we're going to see in, in, in a future chapter where they knew the Scriptures. They knew all the stuff, but Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, but you don't know God. You see? You can know the Scriptures, you can recite the Scriptures, but you might not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's about a relationship with Him, a love relationship. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Yes, a growing relationship. If you're a new believer, you might be scratching your head and you're like, I know Jesus loves me. I do know that. But I don't really really get it fully. I don't understand it fully. Well, as you grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Jesus, He will reveal himself more and more to you. And so don't give up. Please, please don't give up on being in the Word. Because many of you, you're like, I just don't feel it, you know? I just, I read it and I don't feel it. And you quit. Don't quit. Push through. Continue to open the Word and be in the Word and be in prayer. And sometimes, I was reading an author the other day, a well-known pastor who said for like a year, all he could do was just pray the Lord's Prayer because his mind was in such bad shape and he was struggling so much emotionally that all he could do when he came down to pray would just be to pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Because any other time he prayed, his mind just went everywhere and he just lost focus. So he just prayed God, the Lord's Prayer. Don't quit. Don't give up. Know God. Have a relationship with Jesus. That's where we are able to see God at work through the love relationship. 
And next, Jesus gives, in these next few verses, we're going to hit these pretty fast, but he gives four examples to the religious leaders and the people of the day that he is God, that he's truly who he claims to be. The first one, he says that he has authority over all creation. First, look at the second half of verse 20 and verse 21. Jesus says, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So God's going to show Jesus, he's saying, more works than these. For as the Father raises the dead and gives to them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus is saying, as God created life, and as he gives life, and as he sustains life, he says the Son has the ability over life. And we, saw this, we see this demonstrated later on in his ministry when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and we see it even as he is raised from the dead. Jesus, he's telling them, he's saying, look, I have power over all things, including life and death. And then next he says, I have authority over salvation. Verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It's pretty clear, right? Again, step into this historically. Jesus steps onto the scene. This is not the Messiah they've been looking for. This is not the person they think is going to come and save Israel. And then on top of that, he's claiming to be God. And he says, God doesn't pass judgment on you. I do. I mean, think about it. They're, they're saying to the religious leaders today, God is not the one who brings the judgment. And they're thinking, who else would if it wasn't God? Jesus said, it's me. It's all about Jesus. It's about salvation only through him. And Jesus makes that clear. And then the next one is one that maybe we would just kind of pass through over, but to them this would be very, very significant. Look at verse 23. Jesus has authority for glorification. He says, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is being about as clear as you can be. All glory belongs to me because I'm equal to God. I am God. And if you want to honor the Father, you honor me. When you honor me, you honor the Father. So worship. Think about it. Their whole life, their whole existence was wrapped around temple worship, worship of Yahweh God. And Jesus says, when you go to worship and you worship God, you're worshiping me. You just, I mean, at this point, I, I'm just surprised they just didn't kill him on the spot, right? If they could have. Worship belongs to me. If you're worshiping someone, what does that mean? That means that they are deity, their greatness. And Jesus says, that's what I am. And then the final one, Jesus says, he has authority over your eternal destination. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, God, who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Whoever hears my words, my word, and believes, 
Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The value that God places upon hearing the word and, and hearing the truth. And Jesus reiterates this. He says, you hear my word and you believe him who sent me. You have eternal life. Eternal life becomes the possession of a person the moment they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, how can I be born again? Born again, eternal life, only through Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. You know what this tells me? This tells me that if we truly believe in Jesus, something very radical happened in your life. Jesus said it himself. He said, if you pass from death to life, that's pretty significant, isn't it? That you were on your way to eternal damnation and separation from God. You believe in Jesus, and he gives you life, eternal life. Sadly, many people leave it at that. I got my eternal life. Got my ticket. Good to go. Scripture makes it clear, and, and Jesus makes it clear, that putting your faith and trust in Jesus radically alters who you are. So hear this, please, hear this. Younger people, hear this. When Jesus is your Lord and Savior, when you place your faith in Jesus, something changes. You, you go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The Holy Spirit is put within you. Do you think God can be in you and with you all the time and that not radically change? the way you view life, and the way you desire to live life. The reality that our root is in Christ is borne out, is revealed through the fruit of our lives. As we are rooted in Christ, then our lives change. The fruit of our life changes. And our greatest fulfillment comes as we learn how to go to work with our dad, with our father. As we go to work with God, that's where we find our fulfillment. And sadly, Satan has tricked even those who truly believe in Jesus to believe that life is pretty much practically all about us. Because we can compartmentalize our faith and our Christianity to certain days of the week, certain times, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us. And as Jesus did, I do what I see the Father doing, us imperfectly, but God, I want to see what you're seeing. And I want to do what you're doing. God, what you're about, your activity, that's the activity I want to be about. I was talking to somebody this morning, and you know, many of you, including myself, at times we experience this. We experience like during the holiday season, during the Christmas season, sometimes even though there's so many good things going on, sometimes we can become very discouraged, we can become very uh, anxious, we can allow the cares of the world and all our busyness of schedule to just beat us down to the point where we, we're just trying to get through the day instead of seeing what God, what are you doing? What's your activity? What are you about? And, and we miss the fact that our greatest fulfillment, our greatest joy comes in the fact that, God, I see what you're doing, and I'm going to step into that, and I'm going to be part of your will. You know, one thing that helps me, and, and I've used this illustration before, but I'm, I'm going to use it again because I think it's a perfect illustration I'm going I'm to just take this rope right here, and I'm going to take part of the rope, and I'm just going to mark a very 
clear spot right here on the rope. And then, Graham, come here and help me real quick. It's your birthday. We've got to get you to help. <laughs> Happy birthday, man. Hold that right there and just walk that way. Keith, come here. I need your help. Thanks. Walk to that side with that. Thanks. Walk all the way. In my mind, this is what helps me a lot of times is, all right, find the dot on the rope. You got it? You see it? Anybody see it? Front row, you see it? All right, let's picture this as the timeline of eternity, but let's just make this the first five minutes of eternity. And let's make that little dot your life in my life. Five minutes, eternity, your little sliver of time. Let's say it's here. It's a lot of rest. It's a lot of worship. It's a lot of time to recover from our labors from this. And if we believe Jesus, all right, this is not my words, this is Jesus. If we believe him, that he says, lay up your, for yourself treasures in heaven. He says, take your little dot on the timeline of life and eternity and use it to lay up treasures in heaven because you have all this. Don't you think it's worth it to give of this for this? And it's not that we earn our salvation. We don't work hard here so we get this. But this is the fruit that's born out of a fact that we do know Jesus. and We have a relationship with him. And so he says, during this little sliver of life that you have, I want you to be aware of my activity. Look at the example of Jesus. I only do what I see the Father doing. And as a result, I'm going to do his will and focus upon what he wants in all areas of life. I'm not going to compartmentalize my work, my school, my sports, my leisure, my beach time. I want all of this to be used for me. Because in the big scope of things, right, is this really much to give? The fact that Jesus gave his life so you could have eternal life. And throughout this book, Jesus is going to reiterate eternal life again and again and again. Because it means something. Because Jesus said, in me, you have life and life to its fullest, eternal life. And it begins now. And it goes on forever and ever and ever. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Just lay it down right here. So, the heart, the heart aspect is really important today. You just lay it right there. The heart aspect is really important. Because just willingness or wanting it or resolving today isn't going to change anything. You need God's grace. You need to cry out to God, God, I want to love you more. I want to have that relationship with you. So I can see and do your will and use my little time for the fullest, for the glory of God. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I don't want it. Maybe you need to pray, God, help me to want to want it. Help me to want to want to love you more. I think everybody in this room who claims to be a believer, honestly, I'm not just saying this, do it, needs to pray that prayer today. God, I want to love you more, or God, I want to want to love you more. Change comes through God's grace.
Let's cry out to him for grace. And then our hands, just simply who. I say who because God's will always involves people. Jesus came to seek and to save not buildings, not programs. He came to seek and save people, the lost. He came to help people see their need for him. So the question is who? Who do you need to respond to? And maybe, you know, just practically, maybe it's been in this room that there's somebody that you need to, just before you leave today, just need to make a beeline and say, hey, been meaning to get together for lunch. Let's do it. Let's, you know, and you know, they need discipleship. They need encouragement. Because that's where this will of God comes in that we need to step into. Because sometimes we just ignore, we're, we're oblivious and the very people that God has put into our path that we need to be encouraging, to be praying for and putting our arm around, that we walk right by them all the time, and we're so intent on our agenda, our schedule, that we're unwilling to be inconvenienced or unwilling to listen and see God's work in his hand and respond to it in that person's life. Love relationship with God. Through knowing him comes just the ability to be aware of what he's doing. And then we respond, we obey. Let's pray. Father God, we, we all are convicted by the, today's passage and the example that you set. God, thank you for Jesus Christ and sending him not just so we could have eternity in heaven, but so we could have life and life to its fullest, that we can find our full satisfaction, our identity in Christ, and we can live for his glory and honor in this life that you've given us, using the breath that you've given us, the health and the strength that you've given us. God, all of these are a gift from you. And God, may we use them in every situation, every circumstance, every relationship, to point people to Jesus. In his powerful name we pray, amen.